0: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stottmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. Today we're talking about that inevitable part of life, death. No matter how much we kid ourselves, somewhere, somehow, we're all going to die. But it hasn't always been that way, not according to the book of Genesis and most branches of Christianity. Here's an Evangelical Young Earth online pastor who says, "...human, physical, and spiritual death, together with the death of animals, came about through the disobedience of one man. You gotta love this takeaway. A guy eats an apple, and still, a whole 6,000 years later, the puppy gets it. But it's not just fundagelicals who believe this. It's mainstream Christianity, too. Catholics can believe in evolution as long as they think God did it, but never mind. The Catholic Church's user's manual, the Catechism, in its swingin' 1980s update, talks about the curse of death. And it states, death is a consequence of sin. It wasn't supposed to happen, not to us, but then a guy blew it, but really the woman. You don't even have to be religious because this theme runs through the leaky foundation of Western culture like rusty old rebar. No wonder death freaks Westerners out. But it doesn't freak out my guest, Jennifer Kissinger. Jennifer spent 10 years as a medico-legal death investigator, a coroner. When people died, in an accident, a murder, a suicide, or just alone and nobody knew exactly how or when or why, she and her team had to find out. We'll talk about crime scenes because I really dig forensics. Jennifer will tell us about terror management theory, her own religious background, her research visits to the body farm, her drive to find answers and justice, and what it's like to go to work every day with, you know, dead people. Why don't you tell us about what you did for 10 years and how you got
1: into that, that you spent every day with dead people? So my background is forensic pathology. And by training, I'm a medical legal death investigator and currently practicing as a biology and health researcher. So I spent the better part of a decade working as a deputy coroner in a Midwest city, which just to respect to anonymity of the deceased loved ones of any stories that I may tell, I won't mm-hmm. name the exact location, but I have training in forensic entomology, anthropology, blood spatter analysis, and clandestine burial recovery. So I've had the pleasure of spending time at the Forensic Anthropological Research Center at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, um, and I'm not sure if you have heard of this, um, but it's otherwise more popularly known in fiction novels and the media as the body farm, the body uh, thanks, farm, thanks to Patricia Cornwell.
0: <laughs> oh, was that, she wrote a book. It
1: was it about that place. She did. She did. And, and after that point, uh, it started being uh, referred to as the body farm officially. However, if you were to visit the location, uh, because it is a scientific research center, they do prefer uh, being referred to as the, as the Forensic Anthropological Research Center versus the body farm.
0: Yeah, good luck but, with that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. So and explain
0: uh, for people who, who don't know
1: what the body farm is. Sure. So the body farm started in the 1980s, and it was created by a researcher at the time who was uh, doing research on decomposing bodies in in forensics. And so he started out with one uh, one body on a plot of land uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, you know, decades later, now uh, this same plot of land houses uh, about 150 to 200 bodies. And of course, the the plot that he had has since expanded to, uh, I believe it's about an acre and a half. So you can imagine uh, 150 to 200 bodies uh, splayed over an acre and a half. And that's uh, that's, really, it,
0: that's a lot of like, population
1: dense. Does it smell
0: when you go there?
1: No. it It really doesn't because it's outdoors. And mm-hmm. so the wind carries the scent- away that you have bodies on top of the ground you have them buried uh, hanging Um, basically the land is there to give uh, scientists an opportunity to recreate different types of deaths and uh, different types of environments for deaths in order to study the decomposition rates Um, so you may have um, academic researchers you may have also researchers from from the FBI uh, coming to do their testing here, really it attracts people from all over the world. Uh, it's 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 fascinating, and uh, right now um, the land is actually sitting across from a hospital. So you would certainly have I think you would have a lot of um, of complaints if the smell was bad. But, uh, but to my understanding, there have been no complaints to this day (laughs) about having the body farm sitting so closely um, to a hospital facility. So, but it's it's part
0: of the university of Tennessee, but that's not how it started out, right? This guy just started putting dead people on his, in his yard.
1: You know, I, I don't remember uh, if at that time, uh, Bill Bass was the the PhD researcher. If he was associated with the university, so those oh. are some details that are a little unclear to me. Um, but I believe that it did it did start out affiliated with the university in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Um, and it and it is university land as well. Now, um, how and much so- time did you spend there? As much time as possible. <laughs> 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 my favorite. Uh, my favorite. Um, uh, amount of time that I spent was a one-week course where I learned how to do um, clandestine burial recoveries in a forensic context. So, so that's shallow graves, right? Exactly. So they uh, they essentially said, um, you know, we, we spent the week uh, learning the methodology, and then at the end of the week they said, uh, we have a body buried uh, in this general vicinity. We need you to locate it, and we need you to unbury it using the methodologies uh, we've taught you this week. Um, have at it. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's see, we spent a better part of, I think, 14 hours uh, undigging this shallow um, grave and then doing our, uh, you know, investigative techniques in order to carry out sort of a mock investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, we we took the body out and re. Reburied a new one for the next class that would come through. So it was it was a very uh, fascinating, I would say intellectually fascinating, experience. Uh, and there are classes there ha- held year round, and then also the anthropology department um, uses that largely for training of their students.
0: I would imagine if there's someone just buried there, how you unbury them is very important to the investigation, right? Because you don't want to displace any materials that are important
1: exactly we have a very specific way um you know that we go about making sure that none of the evidence is harmed in the process of doing that and there's a lot of documentation that occurs as well so you could say it's slow it's slow digging mm-hmm. and it's it's very. Uh, it's very detailed. Um, there's very specific methodology that has to be used, and so it, it makes for a very interesting time and also um, a long investigation. For example, when I've seen um, investigations that have happened uh, after bones have been found, say scattered in the woods, um, you know, it it may take a better part of, of two to three full days in order for the uh, the forensic anthropological team to do their necessary legwork to determine um you know uh, the information from the bones so it's it's fascinating to watch and it's it's uh, just as interesting to be a part of uh, additional to that i've also spent time on a uh, on a farm that's geared towards forensic entomological research so um a world-renowned entomologist has a has a farm where he uses pigs in order to, um, to research decomposition as it relates to insect activity right. and time and, uh, manner of death. So that was very interesting as well. Um, cause bugs are a big part of
0: it, right? In terms of like, isn't there, is there a sequence of insects or, Creatures that once you die, then they come in and they start the decomposition process
1: Yes, you have you have several uh, layers uh, of, of Insects that will come in at different stages uh, the first ones are are the flies generally so um, a fly can smell decomposition uh, Within 15 seconds of death are from you serious? From about a mile away So they're the first ones on scene. Yeah, they're the first ones on scene. And they're also uh, the ones that can, you know, they're the ones that will crawl through spaces you would never imagine feasible um, in in order to in order to get to a um, a decomposing carcass, whether it's uh, animal or human. Um, But, yes, you'll have several phases of insects that will come in. And, and scavenge at different parts of the decomposition process, um, and then within those different uh, insects, within those different types of insects, um, you can use their um, their sort of um, their birth and life cycle to determine cause and manner of death. Now, this can become tricky if, for example, uh, a, a a human has died from a cocaine overdose, or mm-hmm. just has cocaine in their system, regardless of what type of death they had. Um, one of the most fascinating things that I learned during my time there was that, uh, um, and I'll backtrack for just one second, and mm-hmm. sort of set the stage by by explaining that if a death occurs that needs uh, a forensic entomologist to, to investigate, the the lead investigator of that uh, of that scene will send, um, will send the insects in, uh, you know, in a small container with dirt and also in a small container um, that has different uh, food sources for that insect. Um, it will send that live insects as well as dead insects to the entomologist uh, mm-hmm. because entomologists are not easy to come by, um, particularly forensic entomologists. So they're not always available to come to the scene. So when they receive those samples, they need to know as much detail as they possibly can about the investigation. So uh, they need to know if, for example, uh, the decedent had cocaine in their system because um, cocaine has actually been found to speed up the life cycle of a maggot. So if a forensic entomologist did not know that uh, the decedent had cocaine in their system, they may estimate the time of death differently. And you can imagine what type of of cascade effect that could have on a very Mm. serious uh, investigation, um, especially ones that go to court. So those finer details are very, very important.
0: Do you know if, for example, if someone had opioids in their system, would that slow down the maggots? I mean, does it happen the other way as well?
1: I think that's a fascinating question, and I, and I don't know how to answer that. I, I think it could certainly be a possibility. Um, mm. And since I last checked on the research, that no, those new developments may have come. Yeah. Um, at the time, I know that, that we only knew about cocaine. Um, and I'm hoping additional research has been done to that point, because I could imagine for different um, stimulants or depressants, it could have similar effects. Mm-hmm. So, for anyone who may be listening out there, uh, it could be a very interesting way to take to take any new research that has not been done yet.
0: It also sounds like there might be some job openings in forensic entomology if, <laughs> <we> <laughs> are. <laughs> if there aren't many if there aren't many of them around so tell us how you got into this um, because you know most people. Don't, they want to spend as little time as possible thinking about anybody's death. And uh, you, you were doing it on a daily basis. So tell us about that.
1: That's one of the questions I've been asked the most. Um, so when I was 15, uh, I was interested in in forensics. I think I had done some reading at that point. Um, uh, I read a lot when I was, when I was a child and uh, i had a career class which required me to job shadow and so i chose to shadow a pathologist uh, who also conducted autopsies at the local hospital Mm -hmm. and uh, during that opportunity i saw for the first time an autopsy uh, up close and personal and, um, believe you me, the, the school that I was attending was not very happy about that in hindsight. They didn't oh, know, really? um, and yeah, they didn't know that that was something that I would be partaking in. And I think that and they would have wished I, uh, had filled out, you know, a waiver of some sort. And they were probably upset that my, my parents were going to have, um, issue with that experience. But, um, uh, they didn't. my my parents were uh, were happy for me, but I absolutely fell in love with the the process of uh, scientific investigation uh, of human physiology. Um, and of course, at fifteen, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with that. Mm-hmm. But I held on to that passion. And then, when I uh, got into college, I remember that I had a criminal justice teacher who on the first day ident- identified himself as being a coroner. And and um, I remember very little about the rest of his lecture because I was so interested <laughs> <laughs> in that fact. And, and I remember thinking for the rest of the class, wow, um, you know, I don't know much about what a coroner is, but I do know it's involved with forensics. You know, how can I get involved with this? You know, can I, can I job shadow this person for just one day can I get an internship? Um, so I spent the next week thinking about a little speech, you know, I could give Mm -hmm. to this professor the next time I walked into class to try to, you know, talk him into giving me, um, an opportunity to job shadow for a day. And so I went into class, I was very nervous. Um, but I had my spiel Mm -hmm. and, and it was, it was well received. And uh, a few weeks later I was offered, um, uh, an internship, or really, it turned more into an apprenticeship um, to to follow this person and work and learn for the for the rest of the year. And so I did that, um, and a spot opened up within uh, within the office um, for a deputy coroner. And so at the end of the year, I it, it just became a natural transition for me to actually move. Into that spot and, mm-hmm. and become an employee of the government myself and so that's how that happened and throughout that process I, I became you know very passionate and very intrigued um, by by forensics work and and that's the story really it's it's a lot of um, chance or fate whichever
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: term you may prefer to use
0: but you had a certain comfort level going in maybe more than most, because of your grandmother, right?
1: You know, I I did, and it's it's hard in hindsight to, to you know to identify really where that came from, and I wasn't cognizant of it at the time, um, but I did realize after uh, after I started working in this area that I had um, I had uh, more of a comfortability being around um, that type of work. Than, than my peers or, or other folks that I knew. Um, and so it is possible that it, that it goes back to my grandmother. She was a hospice nurse. And as I grew up and visited her, I remember her taking me through those hospice units um, and, and talking to me as we went through about what was happening to the patients. And, and I think that may have sort of instilled a level of comfortability with the end of life. Um, throughout my adolescence. What's your day like when you're working as a coroner? Every day is different, uh, very different. So when a coroner is called to a scene, um, that scene could be anywhere within the geographical jurisdiction. So you're not so, necessarily
0: going into your office or something. You you might be call, on call and you, you go to the scene.
1: Yes, actually the office is, is uh, where I would spend the least amount of my time. So uh, if, if I were called to a scene, you can imagine that as a coroner, after it's determined that the decedent cannot be revived, the coroner is called to the scene.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you could imagine... Uh, if you cover the multiple types of death, which are homicide, suicide, uh, natural, uh, undetermined, and accidental, then you could be going onto the scene of a car accident, you could be going to a, a scene where someone, someone has been shot in the middle of the street, you could be going to a river somewhere where a body has been uncovered, or you could be going to the middle of the woods, um, searching for a body with, mm-hmm. with, um, uh, with cadaver dogs and, and a team. Mm-hmm. So every day is very, very different. Um, once you have finished the investigation on scene, then you determine what's nece- what's a necessary next step, uh, that needs to be taken in order to determine cause and manner of death. And that will, most of the time it will entail that, uh, that body going back to a hospital or a holding facility where it will await more testing or more, um, more investigation. So that could be an autopsy. It could be uh, toxicological testing. And so that's where the morgue comes into play. But really, uh, that's after the main investigation has been completed. So I spent most of my time on scene, Mm -hmm. uh, in a morgue or in a hospital and, also in an office, uh, in order to do the administrative work. But really, um, most of the work is actually done on scene. And so if you're sitting, say if you're, you're sitting stopped in traffic, and it's, it's a mile long, um, and you see a car speeding down beside you ahead of everyone else, maybe they have, uh, they have some lights going, some mm-hmm. red and blue lights, that could be a coroner mm-hmm. driving up to the scene.
0: Did you have lights like that on your rig?
1: I did. <laughs> I did. I did. So, uh, did you it, ever use my...
0: them when it wasn't warranted? You know, because <laughs> come
1: on. <laughs> wow. I would be able to tell you if I did. No, I, I all joking aside, I, I didn't. But it was, um, you know, it was an interesting feeling that, that I imagine, um, you know, the police and paramedics and EMTs are more familiar with. And those are circumstances where you really rely a lot on your team, which can, which can consist of different members mm-hmm. um, for each investigation. But you may be driving down the uh, wrong side of the lane for at least a mile. And you need to know that the police officers on the other side are clearly directing you and making sure that there's other traffic coming your way because you need to drive and you need to drive fast because every second longer that you take, that the investigator takes is a second longer that citizens in their cars have to wait. You know, the, the circumstances under which a coroner works are so vastly different um, in every investigation. It's what keeps things interesting, and it, it also keeps things surprising, because um, if you ever start to feel comfortable, you know, a, a big surprise will come along. <laughs> so there's usually at least one of those on, on every investigation.
0: Can you give me an example?
1: Oh, wow. Which example? Um, something very specific that I can remember was uh, a homicide investigation mm-hmm. that I conducted. And um, I did not know until I was on scene that I would need to be uh, climbing a ladder to a second floor balcony in order to access the scene. So that was surprising and, and, uh, and unique because in that circumstance you have... Uh, most of the time when you have a homicide, you also have uh, onlookers and you have TV crew that are there. So you have a section of, of the scene that is marked off with tape and you go through that line of tape, but you're still you're still being watched. Mm-hmm. And so um, in that particular circumstance, you know, I, I needed to climb up up to a balcony, uh, up a ladder with my bag uh, and also make sure that I was doing so very professionally, knowing that um, knowing that there are onlookers, and uh, and also not wanting to fall. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So those those circumstances, you have to get very creative, especially if you're if you when it comes to transporting the body off of the scene, because you don't want to create um, more of a scene than there already is. So mm-hmm. in those circumstances, again, you also work and rely very, very heavily on those other members that you have on scene with you. Um, could be the firefighters, the law enforcement, or the mm-hmm. paramedics or EMTs. So we try to be uh, as respectful as we can mm-hmm. on scene as coroners, but it's not always possible, but we really do our best.
0: And so when you get back to the morgue, what's the first thing you usually do? I mean, what's the first order of business? Uh,
1: the first order, uh, once you get into the morgue, is is absolutely to document everything. If you get down to the detailed level, to make sure that there is um, a chain of paper as to who dropped mm-hmm. the decedent, um, how long the decedent will be there, all all of those uh, types of things that are needed in order to have a paper record. Um, but after that, as a coroner. Uh, I, I would do toxicology. So that would be taking blood and urine samples to send off to a lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the autopsies, those would be done by a forensic pathologist. And so depending on where the coroner is located, what the jurisdiction is, and, and how the forensic pathologist and the coroner work together, um, that actually may be in the same hospital or it may be on a, at a different hospital off-site. And so at that point, then the decedent would then be transferred to another hospital for an autopsy. Uh, and, then, uh, and then from there, they would be released to a funeral home.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you ever have to do that thing where, you know, they always show the person going down, the family member or something to identify the body, and there's that room where you, did you ever have to do that?
1: That did happen, and and we really tried to avoid that because as a family member, uh, specifically with coroner cases, because these are the unintended deaths mm-hmm. um, of the fact that that would be the last visual that that family member would have of that loved one in their head. And we were sensitive to the fact that that may not always be a good memory. And so when it was not required uh, for that decedent to be mm-hmm. identified um by a family member meaning that as investigators we were able to identify the decedent with on our wallet own or something
0: uh, like that
1: yes with with wallets mm-hmm. fingerprints um you know there, there are several ways that we can get that information so we would we would um strongly advocate for the family to wait until the funeral home.
0: Not as shocking or traumatized because most people don't see dead people. I mean, you know, it used to be very common. I used to live in a house in Iowa where uh, it was a Victorian house and it had two front doors. One was at a right angle to the other. And the reason it had that second door is because when someone died, you put them in your parlor before people had funeral parlors. Oh yes, yeah. you know, you, yeah. and it had sliding sliding doors uh, in the house, and you went out that exit, not the other everyday exit. This was like the special exit for for people who had died. It was, <laughs> it was really a strange kind of architecture. So how does this? Daily dose of mortality affect your life. And I was reading about fear of dying. And some people have made the point that people can be afraid of dying because they don't feel as if they've lived sufficiently. Um, Do you think you have a different approach to, say, wasting time or just life in general because you saw so much death?
1: Oh, I'm really glad that you brought that up. You know, there, there are a few points um, that I could speak to on that, of uh, things that, that I've really walked away with and sort of integrated into my daily being as a result of working around death so much. Mm-hmm. And one of those is that in my mind, I, I can now think, you know, my day, my worst day, when I'm having a bad day, uh, it's never as bad as the worst day of someone whose loved one has just tragically died.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that gives me a sense of feeling that, uh, you know, I don't need to sweat the small stuff. Um, mm-hmm. On a daily basis, as long as I have uh, my life and, uh, and I have my health, uh, everything else is minor, is quite small. You know, the, the daily, um, you know, the daily frustrations that, that we all face um, are insignificant, really, when you think about life and death, when you when you look back uh, from your deathbed onto your life and, and, you know, and think to yourself, you won't remember those little small things that you were upset about. You know, in fact, you may even, you know, laugh at them (laughs) at Mm -hmm. some point that that you ever were frustrated. And, and another to speak to that point, another thing is that every day is important. Um, It gives me a sense of being in the present moment, Mm -hmm. um, a sense that I'm not worried uh, about the future as much as I otherwise could be Um, because after working so many scenes where there were so many, um, you know, horrific deaths or accidents or uh, deaths that were not expected, it really makes me uh, think to myself that death could be a surprise at any point in time and not, not to sound morbid, but really it's just that every day is important, you know, every day if you really allow yourself to be in that present moment and to experience it that can become a very beautiful thing because you never know when it can be taken away from you and that there's no reason to even fear that being taken away from you so just enjoy (laughs) just enjoy in the meantime and there would be many times where i would leave a scene and i would call uh, i would call a family member or i would call my mother or my father and i would say hey you know i'm just just thinking about you. I just wanted to let you know that I love you and, and care about you. And, and it would often be because there was something on that scene that struck a chord with me. Maybe uh, that investigation that day was someone's mother or father or grandmother. And so it, it would help me appreciate uh, what I have um, and be grateful for it mm-hmm. in that moment. So I would want to make sure to live my life um, as if, if X, Y, or Z person in my life were gone tomorrow, would they know how much I cared? Would Mm -hmm. I feel like I had let them know everything that I, that I want them to know and that I feel about them? And also, um, I'm much much less of a risk taker now. (laughs) (laughs) So before I started that line of work, I would be the first person who would have jumped on uh, an offer to go skydiving or bungee jumping. You know, if it was an adrenaline rush, I would Mm -hmm. chase. Um, And so after working around death for so long and these, uh, you know, on-scene investigations where Every investigation is an adrenaline rush. <laughs> a sustained...
0: Is it really? I mean, is that how you? It, it, does it really kind of pump you up, or is it focused? Or you know, what
1: what's your mindset like when yeah, you're on scene? It really is because uh, what happens is that you, uh, as a coroner, and this also depends on which jurisdiction you're practicing in um, mm. and how busy it is. But uh, a coroner is on uh, on call from anywhere from. 12 to you know, 24 to 36 hours at a time. And so uh, you are on standby, essentially. So as soon as you get a call that you need to leave, you would essentially have your stuff, uh, your gear uh, set up like a firefighter would, uh, mm-hmm. where you're ready to jump into your clothes and you're ready to jump into your vehicle and drive to the scene immediately. Uh, because, uh, again, every extra minute... That you take as an investigator is an extra minute that there are folks who are on site waiting for you.
0: What kind of gear are we talking about? What would you? What would you always bring oh,
1: sure. with you? I had a big bag that had uh, all sorts of tools inside it, so I would be prepared for anything uh, from a natural death uh, to a to a homicide or an accident. Um, I I had tools with me to dig if, mm-hmm. if I needed to help a forensic anthropological team do an on-site um, you know, burial recovery or bone recovery. I would have tools ready uh, for um, insect collection if I needed to do that. Mm-hmm. I would have bags for evidence collection. You have different types of bags. You have plastic and you have paper depending on whether uh, you have wet or dry material of course, you have the usual, um, you know, identification tags. You have your, your camera uh, and, and, of course, your document sheets to be able to document uh, everything that, you're, that you've seen and anyone that you've interviewed. You have Tyvek suits. Um, mm-hmm. um, basically, you have to be prepared for absolutely any circumstance. You also have um, body bags as well. You know that that would be um that would be fun if I ever had to take anyone one on a on a date you know in my in that vehicle with the body bags in the background <laughs> that, would, it's a, that would be a great vetting process <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's been a lovely evening
1: <laughs> in, in, me, in any of those instances where I have had someone riding with me it's a great conversation starter <laughs> And I know that if they ride with me the second time, then that means yeah. that they really enjoy my company. <laughs> <laughs> so after those, you know, after so many cases of, of seeing those, um, those rare instances, those things that you think will never happen, but they do, um, you know, I became much less of a risk taker. So I always wear my seat belt not to text and drive. Um, you know, small, small things like that. And, and I don't seek the, the adrenaline uh, based activities that I would have before I went into this field.
0: You know, on on TV, a lot of the corners that you see are like, kind of old guys who smoke cigars or something. And you're young and very pretty. And that's, it's just, it's not,
1: it's not stereotypical. Oh, that's that's so funny that you mentioned that because I had so many instances where I would show up to a scene and uh, the family would be amidst their grieving, but they may look at me and say, oh, you don't look like a coroner. <laughs> and I would say, well, I think I can take that as a compliment.
0: <laughs> yeah, because people are thinking of like Quincy or something, you know,
1: some some like... Sweaty guy with a cigar. And when you mention what's on the TV shows, uh, the funny thing about that is often uh, on the crime shows, you see uh, any female detectives or uh, you know coroners who do arrive on the scene uh, wearing heels or maybe they're wearing a skirt and it, trying to move dead weight uh, in heels and a skirt. It's just, those two things don't go together.
0: You know, I, I saw this thing the other night. Did you ever hear about that case in Durham, North Carolina, where a guy was accused of murdering his wife and he was sent away for life for it? But there was a suggestion, and I don't know how this finally shook out, but there was a suggestion that she was attacked by an owl. Did you ever hear about that case? Because she had these gashes on the back of her head and she kind of um, fell down the stairs and bled out or something. And um, somebody matched the gashes on her head with the talons of a barred owl. And there had been several other people in the area who had
1: been attacked by an owl. Isn't that weird? That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and I hadn't heard of that case. But that just shows you how unique some of these instances can be. And, and as an investigator, it's really uh it's of the utmost importance to be able to take a step back and look globally at an investigation um versus letting yourself get tunnel vision you know because that's possible and especially after a long time of practicing to sort of go along with what you think you know but really there's there's always details that can jump in and surprise you and you have to be prepared to be open for open to those it's also about um you know, finding justice, you know, not only for, you know, the decedent, but like you mentioned, the family. For me, when I'm doing an investigation, I really think about the relationship that I have as uh, with the decedent, as someone that I'm working for, the relationship is that of respect and dignity. Essentially, I am working for them, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. also what I would tell the families, your loved one will be treated with the utmost respect and dignity during my investigation Mm -hmm. and at the same time you have someone else's life is on the line as well so not only the decedent and the families but um, the impact that that could have on uh, for example like you mentioned in a homicide where someone has spent time in prison or is going to trial and and that Those just those minor, minor details, like what you mentioned in terms of the of the clause, that can affect someone for the rest of their life. So as a coroner, our our ground rule is to treat every investigation like a homicide investigation, meaning really. Yes, meaning that for every investigation, we really look into every avenue to make sure that we have um, completed the most thorough investigation that is possible so that we can know without with beyond a shadow of a doubt that the cause of manner of death that we are stating is true mm-hmm. and you know it's that's where it becomes very important to remove emotion from an investigation um, you may see something that's horrific in nature you know but that but at that moment you have to look at what's in front of you objectively and to do your job and then you can feel that emotion when you get home And, you know, a coroner, a medical examiner, we have a fine line to walk, which is that between objectivism and compassion. Mm -hmm. So conducting an objective investigation, uh, meaning that we're completing uh, an investigation that's as scientifically uh, thorough as possible, um, because it has repercussions uh, far down the line, Um, you know, not only within the families, but the criminal justice system and but also with compassion, when it does mm-hmm. come to talking to the families. Uh, because I know, as an investigator, that I will be part of of what is going to be usually the worst day of someone's life. And I at least want them to remember me as someone who addressed their emotional needs with compassion and helped them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, just to help one person means the world to me. You know, I've received letters from families months or weeks after, expressing gratitude for my role. And Mm. it chokes me up inside because there's such strength and resolve in their words. Um, And I just did the best job that I could, not wanting anything in return. But receiving those letters means the world to me.
0: Why did you leave this kind of death investigation?
1: Oh, that's that's a really that's a really great question and a and a really loaded question as well. But but essentially, it was I felt that it was time for me to use my experiences in a different way in order mm-hmm. to um, to be more preventative in terms of of conducting research and using those experiences that I had and those observations and insights from the end of life and carry that over to um, helping people to live longer lives and and it it wasn't an easy decision it certainly wasn't and um, forensics is still a passion of mine and I still have a foot foot in there but but right now uh, I'm not currently practicing as as a coroner although later in life I think it would be something that I would really enjoy going back to
0: you said before that you've never really feared death Um. What do you think? What do you think happens to you after you die? What do you think is going to happen to you?
1: <laughs> that's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Well, it is. <laughs> yes, it is.
0: But I mean, for someone who sees death all the time, so what's your take on it?
1: Uh, for me, having seen so much death, it gives me back that control of knowing physiologically what will happen to the body mm-hmm. uh, in various different different types. Of deaths, uh, however, when it comes to the more spiritual component, um, you know, I I would leave that up to the skies to, to answer. <laughs> I grew up largely without a a large, you know, sense of of religion. My parents really gave me the freedom to explore uh, to explore my own. So I went from I went from you know identifying as Christian, because, you know, in the town that I grew up in, by default, uh, most people were Christian, and, and I had some, uh, some you know, minor education in that area, and, you know, would go to church from time to time, but, you know, as I really started growing up and, and thinking about my own beliefs, I went uh, from Christian to, to, to atheist, and then I went to uh, agnostic, and then I became more spiritual. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, depending on which line of faith that you follow, your beliefs post-mortem will be vastly different. But for me overall, I feel, um, you know, I feel no sense of fear in terms of death coming to me, because I know, I know what will happen to my body Mm -hmm. at least. And, this reminds me of an article that was in the BBC sometime last year that discussed uh, Bhutan's secret to happiness. Hmm. And th- that country is known to have a high gross national happiness. Yeah, they they that's what they measure, right? Oh, yes, perfect. So so you must be familiar with this and 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 their secret is that they think about death at least 5 times per day. And when foreigners visit, they advise those foreigners to think about their own death for at least five minutes per day. Um, And then, you know, the Buddhist line of faith also has a lot of contemplations um, of death and the planning of death. Um, And so I think all of those, it's very, very, very interesting. Um, You know, back in 1973, I believe it was, there was... Uh, A book called The Denial of Death that was published by an anthropologist, uh, Ernest Becker. Mm -hmm. And he argues that most human action is taken to ignore or avoid the inevitability of death. And he's referring to the Western culture here. Mm -hmm. And the terror, uh, he says, of, of absolute annihilation creates such a profound and subconscious anxiety in people that they spend their lives attempting to make sense of it, and later the terror management theory uh, was created, inspired by Becker's, um, by Becker's thoughts. Terror and, management. Wow. Mm-hmm, the terror management theory, and it basically refers to the terror that one experiences when realizing that their death is inevitable,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and this anxiety is hypothesized to be a major motivator behind many human behaviors and thought patterns, including uh, religiocentrism, uh, love, uh, self-esteem, and also a certain drive for high achievement that may come from wanting to obtain certain belongings or mm-hmm. gain achievements or credentials before death. And and there was a, a paper published about a decade or so ago, and where researchers had two groups of patients and one was instructed to think about a painful visit to the doctor and I believe it was actually the dentist and the other to contemplate their own death mm-hmm. and then they were asked to construct words beginning with uh, the same prefix and the group with which had contemplated their death came up with more positive words. They built more positive words overall Hmm. than the other group that had been thinking about the dentist. And so this suggested that death contemplation lead to positive thought patterns. And of course the study uh, had its own set of limitations, but, but really it suggests that a delay in grieving can lead to the terror described in the terror management theory. And I think I have certainly seen this in practice where um, someone isn't able to grieve immediately after a death. And, and the longer that grieving is postponed, the more complex it becomes. Hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of research out there, especially now, that can give further insight into this matter. And it has incredibly complex nuances. Hmm. But overall, I think that our society is constructed in a way that really fosters a cultural taboo related to the topic of death.
0: I have some, uh, clips here. You know, I went to Catholic school and, um, I was talking with a woman a couple weeks ago who would also gotten, gone to Catholic school and we were talking about how it was all death all the time. I mean, that's all, you were constantly being told, I, we had nuns come in and tell us how we could die and they knew a kid who looked like you and laughed like you and one day she was just sitting and reading a book and she popped a blood vessel in her head and died. Make a perfect act of contrition. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. But here is, um, here's a little note from the Catholic Catechism, and it says, death is a consequence of sin, blah, blah, blah. The, um, the church teaches that death entered the world on account of man's sin. So they're talking about the Garden of Eden, right? <laughs> Even though man's nature is mortal, God had destined him not to die which I don't know how that works. Death was therefore contrary to the plans of God, the creator, and entered the world as a consequence of sin. And I've also seen uh, things online, um, more Protestant denominations where people are writing in, was there ever death before Eden? And this idea that sin creates death. Um, which I find really bizarre because it's kind of a, it's a biological necessity if you're a, a multicellular organism. And I wonder, you know, when you're talking about Bhutan, I wonder if, if when they're thinking about death, what context it's in. I doubt that it's in the sense of this is all wrong. This wasn't supposed to happen.
1: Well, that's a great point. And I think I think that they must be uh, they must be coming from a place of acceptance with it. And when, when you were reading that to me, what came to my mind is, wow, uh, with, with that type of um, ideology and, and thought process being hammered into someone of, of that faith or at least the school that you went to, um, you know throughout the years, it seems that that would instill intimidation or fear against death um has that been your experience you know it's
0: not anymore i don't i don't want to have like a grisly painful death the dying part you know that kind of depends i'd like to just kind of cork off but um i'm not i'm not afraid i don't care i just you know when i'm dead take me out back and mulch me or something you know um I, I see it as a natural process. It doesn't, of course, you know, I'm in good health and it's not something that seems imminent. So it's e- easy for me to say. But the whole idea of it being, of death being something that wasn't supposed to happen, but it's some kind of moral catastrophe, I think really
1: infects Western culture to a great degree. Yes. And, and to me, I, I have to be able to separate um, uh, you know, religious um, you know, ideology or emotion from the physiological process. Just as you mentioned, death is completely natural. Mm-hmm. Everything that comes to life will eventually die. And for me, it's impossible. It's impossible for me to not separate the science from, from any other you know, line of, of thinking that comes along with death. And in our culture, it's mainstream to not think you know, or even to actively avoid thinking about death until it occurs. And then those affected by it are left feeling all of a sudden the emotions that come with grief and without the tools to be able to cope. Um, And universities and training programs are starting to incorporate more end-of-life training Mm -hmm. for medical and psychological practitioners. But for a long time, it was largely left out unless you chose it as your specialty. And even then, the courses were limited. So this means finding a counselor or psychologist who specializes in grief can even be difficult and limiting depending on where you live. There's another component that challenges the postmortem grieving, which is all of the logistics that have to be handled by a family Mm -hmm. or next of kin after death, finding what to do with their residence and their belongings, closing accounts, dealing with insurance Uh, All the while waiting on a signed death certificate to finalize some of those logistics Mm -hmm. that could take weeks to months to arrive, depending on the type of death and where you want to live. And this can actually postpone the process of grieving for, you know, extended amount of time.
0: Hmm.
1: And I want to see our culture moving towards thinking and pre-planning more um, to be able to avoid some of the more logistical challenges even though some of them are right now unavoidable. But it would be a lot to hope for for our society to move more towards death acceptance. Mm -hmm. But I at least hope uh, that we can move towards not avoiding the thoughts on the subject. I think that will be a good start.
0: thanks to jennifer kissinger and thank you for listening i hope we didn't gross you out uh it's still mud season in vermont and that means if you subscribe to the big chew podcast before the end of may you will be entered to win a free weekend in our tiny house on the farm sleeps too you can give it as a gift to a friend if you can't make it to vermont so Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and you scroll down, you'll see a button to subscribe and that would be great. And then you'll get the podcasts every other week. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.